Wait. What? Before we go anywhere, I have um, I have to ask you. Um, sure. What? Did you show up in Vienna that December? Uh, uh, did you? No, I couldn't. But did you? I need to know. It's important to me. Why? If you didn't. Well, did you? Oh. oh, thank God you didn't. <laughs> well, thank, God. Like, uh, thank God oh you didn't. God. I mean, thank God I didn't oh. and you didn't. I mean, one of us had showed up there alone, and that would have sucked. I know, I know. I was so concerned with that. I, I always felt horrible about not being there, but I couldn't. You know, my grandma died a few days before, and she was buried that day, December 16th. She that died day. The, the one in Budapest? Yes. You remember that? Yeah, I remember everything. Of course, it was in your book. But anyway, <laughs> oh, so. I, was about, I was about to fly to Vienna, you know, and, uh, and, I, and we heard the news about her. And, uh, of course, I had to go to the funeral with my parents. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I know. But you weren't there anyway. Wait. Why weren't you there? I would have been there if I could have. I made plans and... Wait. You better have a good reason. What? Oh, no. No, you were there, weren't you? Oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. Oh no, I'm laughing, but I don't mean it. Uh, did you hate me? You must have no, hated I, me. Have you been hating me all this time? You have. No. Yes, no, you have. No. Oh, but you can't hate me now, right? I, I know. I, I mean, I, I my don't grandma... hate you. All right, come on. It's no big deal. All right. I flew all the way over there. You blew the thing off, and my life's been a big nosedive since then. But I mean, it's not a problem. No, you can't no, I'm say kidding. that. I'm oh, I can't believe it. I. You must have been so angry with me. I'm so sorry. I really wanted to be there more than anything in the world. Honestly, I swear. Honestly, I mean, you I, can't I swear. be angry now. You, my grandmother. I mean, no, I know, I know. I honestly thought that something like that might have happened. I, I was definitely bummed, but mostly I was just mad. We hadn't exchanged any phone numbers or I any know, information. I know, that was so stupid. No way to get in touch. I, know, I didn't we even had know your last go name. On. I know, I know. I mean, but uh, remember, we were both afraid that if we started writing and calling, that it would slowly, you know, fade out. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a slow fade. No, it sure wasn't. I know. We <laughs> wanted to pick it up where we left Which off. Which would have been fine yes, if it worked. Good idea. Yeah. Oh well. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch a movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello everyone and welcome to an all new Film Effect podcast. The weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it what we call the full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is Before Sunset. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. All right. Think of it like this. Um, uh, jump ahead 10, 20 years, and you're married. And only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Let me give my back. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. 
can't believe you're here. Well, I live here in Paris. I wanted to talk to you for so long, you know, that now... <laughs> Me too. How long do we have? 20 minutes and 30 seconds? No, Let's we got, go. <laughs> no, we got more than that. Now they have one afternoon to find out if they belong together. I remember that night better than I do entire years. Do you look any different? I do. I'd have to see you naked. What? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on that boat. Come on, it'll be fun. You don't have time. Oh, God, why don't we exchange phone numbers and stuff? Why don't we do that? Past is the past. It was meant to be that way. What? You really believe that? I have these dreams. I'm in the car, and a buddy of mine is driving me downtown, and I'm staring out the window, and I think I see you. What does it mean, the right man? The love of your life? The concept is absurd. The idea that we can only be complete with another person is evil, right? I'm just happy to see you, even if you've become an angry, manic-depressive activist. I still like you. I still enjoy being around you. Like if somebody were to touch me, I would dissolve into molecules. Let me see if you stay together or if you dissolve into molecules. How am I doing? What if you had a second chance with the one that got away? And before sunset, nine years after Jesse and Celine first meet, they encounter each other again on the French leg of Jesse's book tour. So again, welcome everyone to what is most likely going to be the shortest episode of the film effect ever. Not because Before Sunset's a bad film. Far from that, actually. But because it's simple, in simplicity, it's the name of the game when it comes to films like this. It's a continuation of one of the greatest love stories from the 90s before sunrise. The gang's all here. We're in a new European city. Let's go, baby. So yeah, I mean, typically when I talk about these films... I bunch them all together and I kind of refer to it as the trilogy because like these really are like a continuation of one another. Um, it's, it's really hard to watch one without have, having seen the other films. Um, that's what I love about these these three movies and I'm, that's why I'm excited about covering them this year. This one in particular because, you know, I'm just going to get this out right here, right now, get it out of the way before sunset's my favorite. I love this one the most. I adore this film to death. And just, even after the quick rewatch this morning, it just reminded me of just, yeah, this, this film feels like home to me. So, um, it, you know, it's it's real simple. It's a real short film. More on that in a little bit. But, uh, yeah, just don't expect a long, drawn-out episode this time. But, um, you know, yeah. not a bad thing either. I mean- so, how do you feel about the film? No, not a bad thing. I mean, there's not going to be like a ton of trivia or anything no, like that no, or crazy all. drama. It's a simple film. It so, really is. Yeah, it's just a film we both like. Uh, you know, we have similar feelings, so I like this a lot more than the original. Now, the interesting thing is I haven't seen the final film in the trilogy. Uh, I, I you know, completely forgot about it. I always forget that, that you've never seen Midnight. Yeah, I just, it flew under my radar when it came out. I didn't realize it was a trilogy until the Criterion uh, hit, you know, whatever it was years ago. Right. And it's just one I've just never gotten around to. I mean, I want to see it because I love both of these films. Uh, you know, they were just such a surprise when I watched them uh, back in the day. So uh, I definitely want to complete the trilogy. So it'll be fun to uh, finish it out. And then we can obviously we'll talk about this one. And then uh, down the road, we're going to talk about the before uh, it's before midnight, right? The last yeah. One. Midnight uh, before midnight. Uh, right now. Uh, it's it's 
looking like early December, right before the holidays. We're going to do that. Just round it out. It's definitely going to be this year because of the whole nine year thing. Um, and a reminder to the listeners what the whole nine year thing means, because I might reference it again later on in this episode. Um, each of these movies come out, they're nine years apart from one another. And this year happens to be nine years since before midnight was released. So, I mean, we're at the midpoint of the year and still nothing. So whether it's a secret project that maybe link later and, and everyone else did together, who knows? Um, you know, but until the, the, the ball drops on the 31st at midnight, um, until that happens, I'm going to have hope that we're going to get a fourth film of this trilogy or of this, of this, well, it'll no longer be a trilogy, but I, I have, I have high hopes <laughs> we'll get a fourth film. I don't know why. I just, there's a part of me that still believes that secretly this later on this fall, like they'll announce, you know, the, the, the just they'll do something. I don't know. Maybe, hopefully. So, um, but yeah, that's what the whole nine years means. So just in case anyone's listening, like, what the hell did they keep referencing nine years for? That's why. Um, but yeah, just, you know, let's just, just let's just start. Let's just get into it right now. Uh, first time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that, you see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically that's my second time. And. I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to rental for me, you know, this, this was when I took home, still working at Blockbuster and it, you know, it was a uh, pool point came in a couple weeks before it was supposed to come out and I took it home and rented it. And, uh, I, of course was a, I was a fan of this movie from, from jump street. I've been a fan of this movie. So <laughs> right when it came out on DVD is when I saw this movie. So, yeah, I would love to say that I was like, there in the theater on day one with like an Ethan Hawke shirt <laughs> and like a flag or something like that to <laughs> cheer the movie on. But mine's the same way. I, I worked at the video store at this time as well. Uh, so I was really into Ethan Hawke around this time because he had his big film a few years prior training day. Uh, so I was really into it. Like I had gone back and watched some of his filmography and I saw this one. It was, you know, pre street, like a little bit before it had come out and we could rent them. So I saw that and then I realized there was a movie before that. So I went and rented both of them and made it like a double feature within a day or two. And I was just like surprised by how much I liked it. I really didn't think I was even going to finish it initially, but it was free, you know, obviously renting it at the video store. But yeah, they just surprised me. And I just remember enjoying uh, the both of them. But uh, like I previously stated, I think this one was just a little bit better. I think just a little bit better, but both really good and really good time double feature yeah it's funny too because i remember when this came out he was kind of in the middle of like a little mini resurgence ethan hawk because you had mentioned training day a few years before this and he didn't really do much um a couple years after that it wasn't until 2004 when he kind of like just hit the ground running because he did this and taking lives and then the following year, he had Lord of War and Assault on Precinct 13. And I just feel like everything after that, you know, he was, he's just putting out films left and right, you know, some for better or worse. But yeah, um, don't really have a story for this episode. But since we're on the topic of Ethan Hawke, let's do our 
top five favorite Ethan Hawke performances. So, live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. So I'm gonna make it just a simple list. You know, I'm not gonna have like a breakdown of, of, of honorable mentions. In fact, no honorable mentions. But I do have a note I wanna let people know I've never seen Frost Reformed. And I've mentioned this before on the show with Justin. I think it was on a fewer cast episode a couple weeks back. We talked about it. The conversation got brought up. And I, I said it on there then. And I don't know why. I've heard nothing but the best of things. I've heard people tell me that it's Ethan Hawke's best performance ever. That's why I wanted to you know, make a note to people when they... When I could do my five films, and that's not one of them, I don't want people to be like, what the hell, you know, Let's put the torches away, guys, and just let you know, I haven't seen the film yet, I have every intention of seeing it, I'm just, I don't know, uh, I'm going to get around to it, I promise, sooner than later, so, that all being said, my number five is Brooklyn's Finest, you know, it's a different kind of role for him, it's kind of like the anti-Jake Hoyt from Training Day, um, and that's kind of like an ensemble cast. There's a bunch of stuff going on in that movie. You know, Wesley Snipes, Richard Gere, Ethan Hawke, a whole bunch of other people in that movie that I haven't even mentioned yet. Um, but Hawke, you know, just the range, you know, and he shows it. Because, like, prior to this, I feel like he was just always the good guy, the the, the goody-good, you know, the, the romantic type. But he started doing more and more, like, villainous roles starting with I feel like taking taking lives which I mentioned earlier um and this was just one of them he was just a crooked cop real son of a bitch and you know it all goes back to range if he can do something as memorable and incredible as Jake Hoyt and then just flip it and pretty much do he pretty much took the shoe took the place of Alonzo for this film I don't know if you've seen it, Corey, but Brooklyn's Finest is a good movie. Not a film that people talk about often, but I, I at least want to give credit where credit's due. And number five for me is Jake's, uh, Jake, as uh, Ethan's performance in that film. <laughs> yeah, I remember that movie. I, I remember I liked him, but it, it just didn't stand out much to me. It didn't make my list. Like, it was a decent enough movie, but it was just one of those I watched once and never really thought about again until now when I was looking through his filmography. Sure. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was the one where he was bad. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much it. That's all right. Teach the room. What's your number five? Yeah. Uh, my number five has to be one of his most iconic roles, um, and that's Troy from Reality Bites. Uh, you know, it's one of the first films I think of when I think of Ethan Hawke. I mean, it was one of his early films. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say Reality Bites like I'm a huge fan, but... Uh, I remember I really liked uh, Ethan Hawke. Like that was like my big introduction to him. I really liked him in the film, mm -hmm. and to me, just Troy in that is just so iconic. Just the Gen X, uh, whole angst lifestyle thing. Him, Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo. Like that's just one of the first things I think of when I think of Ethan Hawke. So I had to put um, Troy on there from Reality Bites. 
Yeah, spoiler alert, I don't have Reality Bites on my list. And the reason for that is... Uh, it's... I just feel like he's kind of an asshole in that movie. Um, <laughs> he really is. Yeah, agreed. And I don't, I don't know. I think there's just something about that that just takes me out of it. I don't know. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad performance. I'm not saying that one bit. I'm just saying that there's five other performances I think are better than that. But, you know, to each their own. You're not a fan of Brooklyn's Finest, and that's okay. Number four for me, Boyhood. A film that we were supposed to talk about this week, but... We pushed it back, and that's okay, because, you know. <laughs> Didn't have time to watch all five hours of it. Yeah, that, that <laughs> and a bunch of other things. But um, his performance in this movie, you know, it's supporting, but I feel like the scenes with him that include him, where he's important to the plot, stand out. The best part. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like, they are definitely, he's the best part of that film. I mean, him and uh, Patricia Arquette are, like, the best parts. I agree. I agree with that. Both of them. Definitely. So, yeah, Boyhood. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get around to the episode, and I'll have more to say then. So, how about you, number four? So, my number four is one of my most underrated sci-fi films, and that's, uh, he played Vincent, uh, or Jerome, whatever you want to call him, from Gattaca. Uh, I think it's a film people don't really talk about, but I've always enjoyed I watched it back when it first came out, and it's just such an interesting premise to me. The fact that, you know, basically genetics and DNA had taken such a huge effect in the future where like literally in order to get like this into this program, you need to be genetically perfect. And uh, Ethan Hawke plays a character that is genetically imperfect and he meets uh, Jude Law, who is genetically perfect, and they team up to get him into this program. It's just such an interesting thing. Like, the whole time in the movie, like, you're on on edge thinking Ethan Hawke's going to get caught, and just the way he plays, like, that vulnerable um, side, but also the tough side when he's, you know, trying to act like this big, you know, perfect person. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, range, like, he just did a really good job of playing both sides of, you know, just being like this perfect specimen, but also being vulnerable and an underdog. So, uh, yeah, just love that movie. If anybody hasn't seen it, Gattaca and Ethan Hawke, it's just an awesome movie. And I don't think people talk about it a whole lot. I've never seen it. So it's on my list. I'm going to get around to it sooner than later. So um, I'll, I'll check back in after I watch it. Uh, number three for me is one of his newer roles. In fact, this is his newest role, period. The Black Phone. Um, check it out now on Peacock. Or don't. Just came out on Blu-ray. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm, we're not being sponsored by Universal or anything like that. Just want to recognize the film. Uh, especially for Ethan Hawke's performance. I think it is uh, very different. Something um, that I've, I've never seen him play a character like this. And before you write it off as, oh, it's just Ethan Hawke being a psychopath. Well, yeah, it is, but there's some things that I'd rather not talk about because it it's kind of dwells in the territories of spoilers. Um, there's just some things that he does, some choices he makes as an actor that really stand out and help take his character from like a seven or eight to a damn near perfect ten. You know what I mean? He just uh, there's a there's a couple there's two scenes that stand out 
that I'm not going to talk about right now or bring up, but they just are perfect examples of why this is, you know, you know, the, the bottom of his top three performances, in my opinion. Uh, Black Phone, seriously, seriously good film for Ethan Hawke's performance. Um, if, if, if there's a reason to see it, see it for Hawke, definitely. So. Yeah, I guess I'll add my disclaimer. I haven't gotten around to watching it. I mean, I have Peacock. I just literally haven't had a night where you've been busy, I dude. was in the mood to you, watch you, it. I've just been busy. You've been busy with your family, so you're okay. Yeah, so uh, that might have made it on my list. I mean, really, Ethan Hawke is the main reason I'll be watching it anyway. I mean, it looks good either way, but uh, yeah, I'm excited. That might have made my list, honestly. It looks pretty awesome. No. But uh, anyway, uh, tying into horror, my number three is going to be Sinister, uh, his performance, and that I love Sinister. I think that's yeah. like probably one of my favorite horror movies to come out in the past decade, really. I, I forget how what year it came out, if it was more than the, a decade. The but. 10th anniversary is in October. It's on the lineup for the horror But uh, I just love his whole character of uh, Allison. Uh, you know, he's a true crime writer trying to get back, Mm -hmm. uh, into the limelight and, you know, really taking a risk, like moving his family into a murder house and not telling them it's pretty messed up. Pretty ballsy. Uh, and yeah, I just like the fact that he's like going down this rabbit hole just to try to get back his fame. Uh, you know, I just love that little bit of complexity added. Um, and really the whole movie's carried by him. I mean, he, you know, Ethan Hawke is that movie. Like, yeah, it has um, a lot of cool ideas and other stuff that I don't really want to give away too much if somebody hasn't seen it all in all this time. But Ethan Hawke carries that film. I think if it was somebody else, it could have been a much lesser uh, movie. So, yeah, definitely watch that. Um, Sinister, one of my favorite uh, more recent horror movies. And Ethan Hawke is a big reason on that one. All right. Number two. Training Day. Like I said, Jake Hoyt. Let me tell you. Previous episode, um, I, I pretty much said all I, had, all I had to say about him in that role during that episode for two and a half to three hours, however long it was. But yeah, mm-hmm. Training Day is just such a legendary movie. And I think they really... They, they took a big chance in hiring Ethan Hawke for the, for the secondary role of that movie and um it it, it really it, it paid off in dubs i i think that that movie just ethan hawk is on another level you know him and denzel both in that movie you're just fucking bringing it um not to exclude denzel because he's just him in that villainous turn that he does that we're not familiar with with sam at least we weren't 22 years ago when it came out um but yeah, that that movie's just yeah, uh, yeah. Check it out and go back and listen to us talk about it for a couple hours. That's a good episode. So, how about you, number two? Yeah, I mean, all I got to say for number two is booyah, two pair, two pair. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my number two is uh, Training Day as well. Um, I think the chemistry between uh, Hawk and Denzel is just electric i i think they just play off each other so well i mean obviously both of them are great on their own and in their own right but it's just that i don't know that dichotomy between the two of them just really worked out and you know you mentioned it you're right like really that was a big role like that was going to be a big movie 
uh, you know, it had buzz like oh, Denzel yeah. was going to be bringing it. So it could have been anybody in that role. And the fact that, you know, it's Ethan Hawke, like he's not a no name or an unknown, but he definitely wouldn't have been a household name back then either. You know, that was kind of the movie that um, brought him back almost. So, but yeah, it's just such a great film and just excellent performances. You know, the Boy Scout kind of learning his way in the real world pretty much. So pretty awesome. It really brought him back into the limelight because he wasn't doing you know, big roles prior to that. I think his, his biggest year was three years prior to that, 98, with Newton Boys and Great Expectations, even though the, the latter film bombed terribly. Well, they both did, actually. Um, and then Snow Falling on Cedars, and then 2000, he did Hamlet, which I think was kind of a career turn for him. And I do believe that that role of Hamlet is what got him at least the audition for training day. So, all right. Um, number one, come on, come on. So before trilogy, I had to lump them all in the one, like I said before, you know, I always do when I talk about these movies and, uh, it, it's just him as Jesse Williams in these movies are just, oh man, going to get into it soon. So number one for sure is, um, Jesse from, uh, before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight. Yeah, I mean, obviously mine's the same. Uh, Jesse is just such an iconic character for Ethan Hawke. I mean, it, I've only seen the two films, but both of the films, it's just some of the best, most subtle, realistic acting I think I've ever seen in a love story or a uh, love movie like this. Uh, so I have to give him credit. I mean, it's just so real. Like, if you told me that was really Ethan Hawke, I would believe it. Like, absolutely. Um, you know, just the mannerisms and the way um, he plays off Julie Delpy in the films. Just fantastic. I mean, absolutely top-notch performance. Uh, I don't know how it could really get any better. I know there's some other movies people talk about. Like, I know that Predestination was supposed to be a good movie that was a little bit more recent he was in. Um, and there was some kind of series Ethan Hawke was on, wasn't it? Like some kind of like Civil War time series. I forget what the name of that. He might have been. I'm not sure. That was supposed to have a lot of buzz where he was like playing this crazy guy. But uh, to me, it it was always gonna be yeah Jesse in the before films. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of the before films, let's dive into them, or at least the middle one. And let's talk about Before Sunset. Here we go! Alright, so, you know, some background information on the film before we jump into the plot, or... <laughs> It's, it's, you know, it's really basically, it's, it's, it's a simple conversation. That's, that's the plot. So, yeah, the, <laughs> the movie itself, in this film in particular, you've got Jesse confessing to Celine that he wrote a book about their meeting from before the events from Before Sunrise. And that was nine years before, partially in the hope that she would read it and, re- and uh, reestablish contact with him. Now, like Before Sunrise... This is also based on events in Richard Linklater's own life. Now, if you want to hear the story about the first film, go back and check out our episode on Before Sunrise. We talk about we talk all about it then. 
So Aubrey's opponent here, though, he had spent you know one night talking around, talking and walking with this woman in Philadelphia named Amy in '89. Though they initially stayed in touch over the telephone, they lost contact eventually. And then in '94, five years later, he shot before sunrise based on that night with her. Like Jesse and Before Sunset, Link later was secretly hoping that Amy had heard of the movie and would show up at the premiere, but she did not. When Before Sunset was released, she did not show up either. It wasn't until 2010, before Link later started production on the second sequel, Before Midnight, that a friend of Amy's who knew about their story contacted him to tell him that Amy had died in a motorcycle accident on May 9th, 1994, at the age of 24, a few weeks before he started shooting Before Sunrise. Because of this, Before before Midnight is dedicated to her memory. This film itself is nothing but steady cam shots. It's 80 minutes, like I said, <laughs> to the point. But there's a reason for that. This film is in real time. That's something you don't ever see, ever. This movie is yeah. one conversation with two people catching up for an hour, literally an hour. And... And it's all steady cam shots around Paris. Um, the longest take was seven minutes. I'm sorry. The longest take was 11 minutes long. And I believe it's the shot with them leaving the canal. But um, I, 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 I don't quote me on that. I'm not 100%. Overall, shooting took 15 days or a couple weeks, two weeks. Delpy lost her agent over this movie. I thought this was funny reading it after um, you know doing some researching for this episode her agent at the time tried to dissuade her from participating in this project both as the screenwriter and the actress saying that it was a stupid movie no one is going to see and he wanted <laughs> he wanted her to go to the gym instead then what he fired her as a client the same day he told her not to do it and she said i'm, I'm doing it anyway so, what kind of agent is that? I, like, I, that dude, dude, I have no dude. My jaw dropped when I read this. I was like, no fucking way. And it's Richard it checks Linklater. Out. It's, it's not like a nobody. Like, I and know. it's not like a porn. Like, I, I just don't understand that. Like, uh, you're better off going to the gym. You know, you could be in this movie by, you know, Linklater, who's fairly well known, or you could go to the gym and, you know, do ab day. Huh. <laughs> like, what the hell? Well, here's the story about that, because I mentioned she was a screenwriter, too. and But because after, before sunrise, Richard, Ethan, and Julie discussed making the sequel. So they had this plan right out the gate. Link later discussed, or I'm sorry, considered a version to be filmed in four locations and with a much larger budget. When his proposal did not secure funding, he scaled back the concept of the movie in a 2010 interview, Hawk said that the three had worked over several potential scripts over the years. As time passed and they did not secure funding, they adapted elements of the earlier scripts before, uh, for Before Sunrise in their final draft of Before Sunset. So basically they took elements from the previous film that didn't happen and they incorporated it into this. Not that they needed a whole lot to, to fit into this movie. Um... So, like I mentioned, it's it's all in real time. And because the film takes place during the mid to late afternoon, that was the only time of the day they could shoot this. So think about that. You know, most films you get on set, you're on set for like 16 hours at a time and shit. Because you can film during the, the morning, afternoon, and evening because it doesn't matter. Here, 
because you're doing an uh you know hour and 10 minute conversation for your movie and that is literally your movie you have to just stick to the one time of day so basically what i'm getting at is every shot had to work like they 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 add it they said that this concept added a hyper reality of the film and often relied on the actors uh this is link later he relied on the actors to get perfect takes at the right time that's got to be challenging you know that's got it's got to be like that's a, a level of stress that I never really thought about actually until just now talking about it with you, Corey. Like I've yeah. never thought about that before, but that's crazy. You know, they only shot it for two weeks, and then it has to be a tight budget, a tight timetable. Uh, I mean, yeah, that uh, that's crazy, and then long takes too. I mean, right. this film feels real time. I mean, and obviously there's cuts and different scenes, but I mean, it absolutely just feels like one long conversation. And that's a huge compliment for the movie because that's obviously what they were going for. Uh, so the fact that they had these long scenes, I mean, it probably helps that, you know, both Hawk and Delphi were writers on it. You know, that probably does help. Right. But still, uh, yeah, I mean, that's gotta be stressful. You're on a big budget movie. You just have time to keep going and going and doing it and doing it. Here, you only have a few cracks at it. Stressful. That's the, that's the right word to look that I was looking for. Stress. Good word. Yeah, because... I don't know. The, the film, though, was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. The screenplay is not based upon any existing text. But the reason it was adapted, because the Academy Rulebook says that all sequels are adaptations. So every sequel that gets nominated for best picked for uh, every every sequel that gets nominated for its writing automatically gets adapted screenplay, not original screenplay, adapted because it's an adaptation of this of the original film. I never never really knew that until now. So, um, and then I also want to mention one more thing, unless um, be, unless one before one of us forget to. Uh, it's on my mind. A few years before this movie came out, there was a movie called Waking Life that was released. And it's a late later film, and it's a bunch of different stories, and it's... I can't... I don't know like what what that design is. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen Waking Life? Gordon? I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. It's like an animated yeah. film but it's like a weird kind of animation. It's like, it's like he actually filmed actors, but the, but then he animated them on post. Like, I don't know what this style is called. Yeah. It was like rotoscope. That's yeah. What it's thank you. Um, there's a segment in that movie. It's not long. It's like a five, 10 minute scene with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as Jesse and Celeste, uh, Jesse and Celine. And, um, me personally, that's not Canon. It's just a thought in someone's mind, um, so I've just I've just wanted to get that out there. I've never considered that film or that segment to be canon because think about it that's that's in between these two movies and they're not together clearly. So because they're seeing each other for the first time in nine years during this movie, so how can that be canon? You know, so Waking Life is not canon. People just throwing that out there. Sorry to burst any bubbles if you thought it was. Eddie. 
So the film itself begins with various beautiful shots of lovely Paris. We get this opening credit sequence with um, oh, a Julie Delpy song, An Ocean Apart, playing over the opening credits. There's uh, actually three songs from Julie Delpy that plays out plays in this movie. Not sure if you knew that, but this is the first one, the uh, song playing over the opening. Um, then after that, we we're introduced or reintroduced to Jesse. He's written his book. It's a best-selling novel called This Time. It's based on uh, his and Celine's time together from nine years prior. It's also worth mentioning this play. This film takes place in real time in 2004. Or this place ta- it takes place in 2003, the year they filmed it. Just like Before Sunrise takes place in 94, even though it came out in 95, because that's when they filmed it. Um, so yeah, during a book, there's a book tour that he's on in Europe, and he's at this coffee shop called, or it's a bookshop with a, you know, every every I feel like everywhere in Paris has a coffee shop attached. It's like a modern day Starbucks. Shakespeare and Company is the name of the place that he's at, and there's three journalists that are interviewing him. It doesn't have the biggest of crowds, but he's not that kind of author. Don't worry. One of the uh, inner the, the journalists is uh, convinced that the two characters in the book will meet again. Second one says that. That's not the case. It's the exact opposite. They're not going to meet. Then there's a third person who just wants them to, but is doubtful that it's going to occur. Do you consider the book to be autobiographical? Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, isn't everything autobiographical? I mean, we all see the world through our own tiny keyhole, right? I mean, I always think of Thomas Wolfe. You know, have, have you ever seen that, that little one-page note to reader in the front of Look Homeward Angel, right? You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, he, he says that we are the sum of all the moments of our lives and that uh, anybody who sits down to write is going to use the clay of their own life, that you can't avoid that. So when uh, I look at my own life, you know, I have to admit, right, that I've, I've never been around a bunch of, of guns or violence, you know, not really, no political intrigue or a helicopter crash, right? But my life, from my own point of view, has been full of drama, right? And uh, so I thought if I could write a book that that could capture what it's like to, to really meet somebody. You know, I mean, the, one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me, right, is to, is to really meet somebody, make, make that connection. And if I could make that valuable, you know, to capture that, 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 that would be the attempt or... Did I answer your question? I'll try to be more specific. Were there ever a French young woman on a train you met and spent an evening with? Um, See, to me, that, uh, I mean, that's not important, you know? So that's a yes. All right, since I'm in France and this is the last stop of my book tour, yes. I like the fact that they have the three um, journalists there because it kind of represents like the whole spectrum of like what the audience would probably think, yes. you know, like because you're going to have some people that are romantics and think that they got together and other people that are more realistic or pessimistic. So I like the fact that they have that kind of the spectrum in there. Yeah. And I like how Linklater incorporates scenes from the first film playing over Hawk's performance here. Like we actually see like scenes playback from before sunrise when they first meet and stuff. So, um, 
Yeah. One last question. What's next? Jesse's got this idea for three to four minute stories that play out like a pop song. He goes into his story about this guy getting reacquainted with reacquainted with his youth before he's told that he's got a plane to catch. So he's got to wrap up. Enter Celine. She comes into the picture and like I said, he's reminded numerous times by his manager that he's got a plane to catch in an hour. So they Jesse tells Celine to go outside and he'll he'll meet her out there and he arranges for or at least his manager or publicist or whoever's with him it's in charge of this trip that he's on arranges for him to get picked up by the driver so he makes it on the air he makes it to the airport in time because even this manager is like yeah I'm not buying any of the bullshit you'll be back one time fuck that I'm gonna have the driver come to you so yeah um and they go out and they start their you know their film it's like watching the events of before sunrise or yeah before sunrise happen all over again with these two characters and you know what i can watch that shit all day long this movie is just kind of going off course here and just speaking freely and not going about the plot because this has nothing to do with the plot right now i just think that this movie um it's just so good the dialogue flows so well these characters are so likable that I could just watch this film and get lost in it. It's one of the shortest movies you could possibly ever make to be considered a motion picture. But it don't make a difference to me. Like, I just, it's a real-time conversation with two people that I adore and I love. And, yeah, man, this film's great, so. Yeah, and I just love the fact that, like, when they first see each other again, you know, it's not really awkward, but it's slightly awkward because obviously they haven't seen each other in nine years. And, you know, Ethan Hawke or Jesse has written this book. And, you know, if she's there, if Celine's there, obviously Jesse knows that she's probably read it. So I think he almost feels like I get a little hint of kind of like embarrassment almost like you know, that he's romanticized and written this whole book about their one night. And, you know, obviously, as we find out, you know, later, Celine might not necessarily have felt that way. Like, so, um, you know, I just like the fact that there's that awkwardness when they're like talking about, you know, going to the coffee shop and, uh, you know, when they first get talking, it's like, you know, if you haven't seen an old friend or an old flame in a long, long time, and I think it captures it very well, just feels very realistic. It's not like they just snap right back in to the love story, even though they haven't seen each other in nine years. You kind of see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's like these two never missed a beat when they're reacquainted, you know? Um, I was, I was about to say something else, but I totally forgot. It's, it's, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and Celine, she knows what she's doing. She knows the whole she goes in there intentionally. And this is how I feel, and it's it's kind of like to make up for what happened nine years ago. It's, I feel like this is all to you know make the right choice as opposed to you know leaving and never seeing each other until nine more years later. This time, you know, she makes sure that things... And again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but again, this is just... This this movie itself, the plot is the conversation, really. 
you know, it's kind of just, it's kind of hard to talk about this movie and, and not just go off script. The, you know, this movie, look, guys, I know we do our whole plot breakdown every episode. Here's the plot. Bookstore, they go out, they talk for 60 minutes. There's a part where they go, they, they take a boat ride through a canal, but they're still having the same conversation. And it ends at Celine's place. We'll get to the end. Well, you know, I want to. I, I at least want to save the end to talk about. You know, on its own because I love the ending so much. But you know, <laughs> just right now, just you and me are having a conversation about a movie that is a conversation. Fair enough. Because, yeah. like you said at the top, there's not much like trivia. You know, it's not a whole lot of trivia at all for this movie. You know, they they got together for 15 days in Paris. And around around lunchtime or whatever, because <laughs> they can only get around the same time every day to, to film. And they got this shit, you know, and they put it together. And I love this movie. It's 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 uh, refreshing. Although there is one thing I should mention: the summer they filmed this had record-setting heat. Like the cast and crew suffered along with the. City residents as temperatures exceeded a hundred degrees for most of the production. So it's hot. And fucking poor Jesse's wearing a long sleeve like dress shirt <laughs> throughout this movie. So suck on that. But yeah, I mean it's just them having it's you know, you've seen before sunrise, you've seen before sunset pretty much as far as the convers you know what kind of conversations they're having. They're having you know, personal conversations, intellectual conversations, you know, hypothetical conversations. They're just having the kind of conversations everyday people have. And it's just the realism in this movie. It's another reason why I love it. Like, I can go on and on about the shit that I love about this movie. And the other two, for that matter. Um, but yeah, that's the gist of it. You know, they get together and they re- reacquainted, walking throughout Paris, just like in the first film, they're going through um Venice and you know we'll talk about the end in a little bit once we I finish talking about everything else because I do feel that the ending deserves to be talked about on its own but they have different conversations that range from like we find out that she, she her grandmother got sick and ended up passing away eventually but that's why you know because at the end of, of before sunrise they agree to meet back at the train station in six months from that day. Because again, it's two, it's 1994, so there's no cell phones and stuff like that. Like Beepers and pagers were starting to become a thing, but I doubt those two had the access to that, especially with her being on the side of the globe. But I digress. So any, anyway, what happened, fast forward six months, she ends up not being able to make it because her grandmother got sick. But she says she had every intention of making it until she got that phone call about her grandmother. Meanwhile, Jesse tries to play it off like it was just some goofy, you know, idea that wasn't to be taken seriously. So he plays it off like that at first. And then she she's like, oh, thank God you didn't go. And then she's like, wait a minute. you." And then she kind of like, takes it back and, and gets upset. Like you you were gonna stand me up and I had I was I had every intention of going to hadn't it been for my grandmother and you and he was like 
then and that's when it, you see at first you see it in the look on his face and then like she asked him again and it's all in, like the way he responds to her like yeah he actually did go back we find that out eventually yeah so. and it doesn't surprise me because the fact that he like wrote this whole book and just had so much romance i mean i don't think somebody oh, yeah. that was just gonna blow it off and it didn't mean much to him like if it didn't mean much to jesse he would have just blown it off and not really thought much more about it and i don't think the book would exist so it doesn't really surprise me that he was the one that actually went back you know? And here's one more thing too. So Jesse, we find out, is now married, um, with a woman because she became pregnant with his son, who we just hear about. His son's name, I believe, is Aaron. He says at the end of the movie. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm double checking myself. His son's name is. Hank. I was way off. So Hank, because we actually see Hank in Before Midnight. So he's now got a four-year-old and they're just on the Rocky. They were they got married. She got pregnant. That's why they got married. And they're now in a wedding crisis. I'm sorry uh, to hear that you know, you're not that happy with your marriage, right? Well, this friend of mine, she's a shrink, and... Yeah, uh, how's she doing? She's a mess, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, she she was telling me that she's been dealing with a lot of couples that are breaking up for the same exact reason. Mm, what reason is that? Well, all this couple expected after a few years of living together for the passion, that consuming desire to be the same that in yeah, the beginning. Right. It's impossible. No, I know. And thank I know God, that. otherwise we would end up with aneurysm <laughs> if we were in that constant state of excitement, right? Uh, we would end up doing nothing at all with our lives. Do you think you would have finished your book if you were fucking someone every five minutes? I might have welcomed the challenge. No. I don't know. <laughs> but you know, it's natural for your wife after the birth of no. son. She has to give all her love of to course. the little one. Of Imagine course. if she was totally obsessed with sex, writing you like a wild cat. That wouldn't make any sense, no, right? No, no, no. Everything you're saying makes sense. It's, it's, it's not about sex. I... No, I know. It's obvious. I am. Um... You know, couples are so confused uh, lately. I, I think it must be that men need to feel essential, and they don't anymore. Because it's been imprinted in their head for so many years that they had to be the provider. Like, I, I'm, an, I'm a strong, independent woman in, in my professional life. I don't need a man to feed me, but I still need a man to love me and that I could love, you know? So, uh, drive us here. Yeah. Well, I guess this is goodbye, and... Uh, you well, better no, give me your... No, why don't we just give you a ride home, wherever you're going, huh? Well, I can take the metro. No, 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 no. I, my flight's not until 10, right? They've got me arriving two hours earlier. It's this way we can on... keep talking. No, no, no. Monsieur? It's not really uh, on the way. Can... Ça vous ennuie me déposer au passage 10 rue des petits écuries? Oui. Oui. Oui, allons-y. Allons-y. D'accord. Ça vous mettra pas en retard? Non, non, c'est pas de problème. Vous pouvez me laisser au métro... Au métro Château d'Eau, ça ira très bien. Entendu. Merci. And this parallels the story that he told her, her being Celine, and before sunrise about his parents marrying because of his mother's unexpected pregnancy and their subsequent divorce that followed. So yeah. he's basically living the same life his parents did. And that's kind of like, that's that whole full circle that I keep talking about and bringing up. 
that's how a lot of us are. You know, we end up repeating uh, what our parents did. And, you know, it's obvious the whole time when Jesse's talking about uh, his wife and just his home life. It's fairly obvious he's not happy. You know, he talks about his son and you can tell like he likes being a dad. Yeah, that makes and him happy. he loves his son. Right. That makes him happy being with his son, but it's obvious he's just in this relationship with a woman he doesn't necessarily dislike. He, you know, you can tell he has respect for her and he wants good things for her, but you can just tell he doesn't have that burning flame passion like he might have for Celine, for example. You know, you can just tell as he's talking about it, just the way he's like, uh, you know, when they're talking initially, he's like, oh, yeah, life's great, perfect. It's just, you can just tell right away that it's not perfect. Right. It's, having issues oh real quick that uh, earlier i mentioned i th- i thought that the 11 minute steady cam scene was when they all got off the canal and uh, no no I-, I meant to say before the canal because after the canal his rides there to meet them to take you know her home and him to the airport so and then in that scene it's worth noting when they're in that car ride um there's a reenactment of a scene from the or a shot from the first film. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever caught that. While he's got his head turned, she goes to like reach for his hair, and then he turns his head, and she kind of and she pulls her arm away. That and then in the first film, the same thing happens, but it's Jesse who goes to reach and 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 touch Celine when her head's turned, and then when she turns towards him, he quickly pulls his hand back. Same thing happened. Yeah. It, it, the scene mirrors one another in this. You know, you, it's it's a famous gif. You know, on the you know, on the internet. So, but yeah, it's it's also you know one of my favorite shots in this movie. So I wanted to mention that. But yeah, other than that, yeah. you know, this is the movie. It's just them having conversations, just like in the first film. Yeah. So they leave the bookstore and then they walk and they find the little coffee shop. Right. And, uh, you know, it's really just them getting reacquainted right here. And, you know, I find it interesting because you find out Celine is, uh, you know, like an environmental activist mm-hmm. and she's just really concerned about the world and the earth and just trying to be a good person. Like, it, it's just and she's awesome like that kinda. in Sunrise, too. She is. And it's just like a natural progression. Right. That, yes. You know, she's trying to be, you know, something that matters. And, uh, you know, she's a, she mentioned she's in a relationship, too. But, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of distance, like they're not together a whole lot. And you can just kind of tell, too, by the way, Celine talks about her significant other or her boyfriend or whatever. It's just you could tell the passion is in there. Like, he might be a good guy that they have. She has fun with, but definitely not, you know, the burning flame as well. So it's just interesting hearing them both talk about their lives. And then obviously Jesse is you know this uh, author that's traveling around and has the issues with the home life so yeah it's just interesting kind of hearing how they progressed in the past nine years when they're in the coffee shop oh yeah because you you know, like you said we see them both expressing the satisfaction with their lives and then we see them slowly start to just rekindle those feelings now i do want to say in regards to this lover of Celine's, apparently, I don't think he's real. I'm not, yeah, it's a good possibility. I really don't. I've always thought that he was just made up, you know. Very vague. Yeah. Very vague, you know. We know at least Jesse's not full of shit because he has a son. <laughs> so, um, 
yeah, I just think that she just kind of like makes up this guy because like we see, you know, we're, I'm not gonna get ahead of myself, but you know, the apartment I was I was starting to get at. Also, want to mention that the first film there's that whole like question. It's kind of like vague, like did they or didn't they have sex in the in the the the, the field or whatever at night? Well, you find that out in this movie. Yes, in fact, at first. You know, it's um, she can't remember the sexual encounter, and doesn't think they did anything. But Jesse says that he makes the comment. That he even remembers the branded condom that he used. Am I coming therapy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Does it help your sex problems? My sex problems? No, I'm kidding. Oh, come on, tell me the truth. I mean, we didn't have any problems that night. No, I'm kidding. We didn't even have sex anywhere. But that's a joke, right? No, we didn't. Well, we're I mean, all... that was the whole thing. No, of course we did. No, 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 we didn't. You didn't have a condom, and I never had sex with that one, especially in a one-night thing. I'm extremely paranoid about whoa, my health. There's whoa, no way whoa, I would have... Whoa, I'm finding this very scary that you don't remember what happened. No, listen, okay? I didn't write an entire book, but I kept a journal, okay? And I wrote the whole night in it. That's what I meant, you idealizing the night. All right, listen, I even remember what brand of condom we used, okay? okay? That's I disgusting. Mean, I, I don't want to hear disgusting. it. disgusting. No. What? Okay, you know what? When I get home, I'll check my journal from 194, but I know right. I'm right. Wait a minute. What? Was it in the cemetery? No. No, we went to the no. cemetery in the afternoon. It was in the park. Very late at night. In the park. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I can't... I... Okay. <laughs> no, Is I... that forgettable? I mean, you really don't remember. In the park. Okay, wait a minute. I, I think you might be right. All right, no, I, you're, you're messing with me now. No. Are you messing with me? Okay, no, I'm sorry. I, I think you're I mean, you're right, okay? Sometimes I, I put things in drawers inside my head and forget about it. I guess it's less painful to put certain things away than to live with it. I'm sorry. Well, so that, that, that night was like a sad memory for you? No, I didn't mean that night in particular. I just meant certain things are better off forgotten. I remember that night better than I do entire years. Me too. Really? Well, I thought I did. <laughs> and then later on, it's revealed where she, she's like, yeah, I, I definitely knew we had sex. In fact, we had sex twice. I can't believe you didn't remember that part. So <laughs> I've always thought that was a pretty I'm, funny little dig. Like, yeah, I remember the whole time. I also remember having sex with you twice. Yeah, it, that was, yeah, after they like left the coffee house and they're walking uh, like in the park. That's when you find that out. And yeah, it, it's like an interesting touch because... It's left ambiguous in the first movie. I initially, after watching the first film, I didn't think they actually did have sex. So it was interesting hearing that indeed they actually did. And there's one weird thing, though. I don't like when it's revealed that Celine actually does remember them having sex. And Jesse asks, like, well, why did you say that? Like, why did you pretend like you didn't remember? And then Celine says, well, women do that sometimes. It's like, I I, I didn't know that was a thing. I, I never recalled like, a woman like denying right. <laughs> or not remembering something like that. I don't know. It was just kind of odd <laughs> to me. I didn't quite understand that line. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But yeah, before we get to the end, is there anything else you wanted to bring up about the story and what happens? I mean, we talked about all the, the, the major points that, you know, the characters, they call it up with one another. I mentioned the the, the whole scene reenactment inside the car with the, the whole hair pulling back thing and um you know I mentioned 
how Linklater incorporates, you know, the the scenes from the first film to play out as uh, Jesse's memory. So, and I also mentioned, yeah. I, I mentioned Julie Delpy has a song that opens up the movie, Ocean Apart, beautiful song. Check it out. Yeah. And I mean, obviously they uh, go on like a little ferry as well. Um, you know, Through the canal, right. Not... Let's get on that boat. Come on. No. No, come on. It'll be fun. You don't have time. Oh, it looks we gotta like they're go. about to take off. Look, I've got, I've got 15 more minutes. Um, do you have a cell phone? Yeah. All right. Well, look, I got the, that driver guy's number and I can call him and then okay. they can pick us up at whatever the okay, next you know stop what? is. I've never been on those boats. It's for tourists. No. It's embarrassing. Come on. Okay. So at that point, like, you know, they're definitely rekindled, uh, enjoying talking to each other. You know, it's, it's like you can tell Jesse like knows like time is against him. Um, and also I just like, they're just having like the philosophical type conversation. Cause it keeps coming up where Jesse is kind of the more happy go lucky optimistic in this movie. Um, you know, where he thinks oh, the world might be okay. And you know, I'm just having fun being an author. Whereas, uh, Celine is, you know, the more pragmatic, uh, you know, do gooder. That's like, if, we don't fix the world. Nothing's going to get fixed. So I just like hearing that kind of conversation, uh, you know, between the two of them as it's ongoing is, you know, she's like, Hey, we, you know, if we don't fix this stuff, nobody is. So, you know, that's why I want to go out and do that. So it's just kind of interesting hearing how Jesse's kind of, you know, more of the optimistic and just, uh, kind of going with the flow. And then, uh, Celine, <laughs> um, you know, is obviously the, activist and more pragmatic right. so i i just like that they just go well together i guess oh yeah definitely they really really do i love these two so much so um yeah the end they go to they end up she's gonna get dropped off at, at her place uh but then he arranges to come up and get a cup of coffee so kind of stall yeah because they were in the car they were in the car going from the canal and the idea was to just drop her off right. and then he goes to his flight. Uh, but of course, you know, he has to, he wants to walk her to her apartment, which, you know, we all know the reason for that and how that's going to end up probably. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, the end. Let's just jump into it. So they go to they get dropped off, and he ends up no. Jesse ends up uh, going up with her, like I said, and we see this couple at first at that uh, at the at the apartment, um, in the courtyard there. That man and woman are actually Julie Delpy's real parents, Albert Delpy and Marie Pillay. So huh, that's a fun fact, that. yeah. So yeah, they go inside and Jesse persuade Jesse persuades um Celine to play a waltz for a night, which is a song on her guitar she sings and uh she write she it's a song that she wrote about their encounter in Vienna. Jesse plays uh, Nina Simone's Just in Time on her stereo while Celine prepares their tea, which Celine then dances to and acts like the lounge singer um, as she as Jesse just sits there and watches her in astonishment. Now, you look closely and you can see a review of Jesse's book this time on Celine's bookshelf in her apartment while he's commenting on her baby photos, I believe, or baby picture. Um, it's a little vague thing in the background, just kind of a blanket or miss it type thing. And apart from flashbacks, Jesse and Celine don't kiss at all in this movie. When they first, uh, when, and when he says hi to her at first in the bookstore, she immediately kisses him on the cheek the whole French way. But as far as, you know, intimate or even a kiss on the lips at all. Nope, not in this movie. So, I thought that was interesting, honestly. You've got got this couple that you're just rooting for so much, and it's one of the greatest romantic romantic dramas of all time, or it's one of the greatest romantic films of all time, and the the, the two lead characters don't even kiss once, you know? That just kind of speaks volumes, that's all. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and then we get the iconic final lines. Baby, you are going to miss that plane. I know. (laughs) Fade to black. The end. Perfection. Did you ever see Nina Simone in concert? No, I never did. can't believe she's gone. I know, it's so sad. Thanks. I saw her twice in concert. She was so great. That's one of my favorite songs of hers. concert she she would uh, she would be right in the middle of a song and then you know stop and 
and, uh, and walk from the piano all the way to the edge of the stage, like really slowly. And she start talking to someone in the audience. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> and then she'd walk back, took her time, no hurry, you know. She had that big, cute ass. <laughs> she would move, woo. <laughs> and then she would uh, go back to the piano and play some more. And, <laughs> and then she would, uh, I don't know, just start another song in the middle of another, you know, like stop again and be like, oh, you over there. Can you move that thing? Uh huh. Oh, you're cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Baby, you are gonna miss that plane. I know. Yeah, this whole end scene, uh, you know, the rest of the movie, the whole movie's great. I'm not uh, downplaying anything, but this end scene, it just captures it so well. Like, you know, just like Ethan Hawke, like he's silent most of the time, but just yeah. the way his expression, his facial just expression, his physical, yeah, just his physical acting, like you can just, just feel the love between the two and you can just see in his eyes that you know he he's loved Celine this whole time but right now he's falling back in love with her yeah. as he's hanging out in her apartment and as she's singing and pretending to be uh this dancer you can just tell he's fallen back in love and he's just head over heels and you're right like he is not making that flight he is staying in that apartment. Yeah. He is not going home anytime soon. And I just love the sight of just him sitting there just watching her in just astonishment and the way he's like just fiddling with his ring and everything. And it's like he's just because he knows that this is it. You know, this is his future sitting right in front of him. And it's it's beautiful. The, the whole moment because, you know, as a viewer we want nothing more than to see these two characters just be together forever. And it's just, I, I, it, I've said this numerous times and I'll say this, I will take it to my grave. This is one of the top three greatest endings of all time. In my opinion, my humblest opinion, just, I love it, baby. You were going to miss that plane. I know fade to black the end. Roll credits. Ah, fucking love it. It's, yeah, it's just so personal of a scene. So obviously you're in Celine's apartment and, you know, you're just learn. Obviously, we know a lot about her, but you just learn so much more like, you know, from the art in her room and uh, just the way her room's put together and the music. Like, it just feels so personal and it's just so relatable because we've all been there where we're mm. oh, yeah. uh, meeting up with somebody and going to their place for the first time and really learning more about them. Um, it's just so relatable and it just flashed me back to, you know, when my wife and I were first starting to date 
And the first time I went over to her place, like it's just I think it's much more relatable than the first film. I mean, you know, obviously I saw certain aspects of my life in the first film, but I've never met up with somebody on a one night thing in Europe. Like, you know, that's not super relatable to me. This is, though, like as far as, you know, meeting up with somebody maybe you haven't seen in a while or rekindling an old thing Mm -hmm. and this end scene just falling in love because obviously we've all fallen in love and it just captures it so well and it just totally just reminds me of me and my wife because obviously the big things matter in a relationship but really at least for me and i think it's true for a lot of people it's the small things that you see in your partner oh i've always Uh, i always say that it's all about the little things the sacrifices you make yeah and this is one of those uh, parts, just a little thing of her singing this lounge song, uh, I think just is kind of what drives it home uh, for Celine and Jesse. So it's just so interesting. And then hearing about her uh, background and her parents a little bit more. It's just such an awesome scene. Yeah, it's perfection. Like if you guys, if you have to pick like a romantic film or a series to watch with like a date or a girlfriend, watch these because these are actually well acted and have excellent writing, whereas a lot of that other schlock watch, is just terrible. At least watch the first two. You might want to hold off as a couple watching the third movie. <laughs> we'll get to that in yeah. December. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, these are films, this in particular, you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. There's really not an in-between. You're not really kind of the person that's, or anyone's not really, there's not, saying, oh, before a sunset was okay, it's not a valid response. Like, how is it just okay? It's either great or it's not. I don't know. It's, 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 it's a conversation. That's, it's, like I said, at the top of the show, simplicity. Um, but yeah, that's, and that's the plot. That's the plot. Like I said, it's it's nice and easy. This is going to be a nice, smooth listen this week. Uh, that being said, let's jump into box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So the film had its premiere on February 10th. 2004 at the 54th annual Berlin International Film Festival. Didn't come out until five months later, July 4th, well, it was July 4th weekend. The release date was July 2nd, 2004. It opened up across 20 screens, very limited. The widest release was 204, so was not a big release at all. Um, opening weekend, it grossed 219 thousand four hundred twenty five dollars twentieth place second weekend four hundred and eighty five thousand one hundred and seventeen dollars still twentieth place that's an increase of one hundred and twenty one point one percent do you have you looked do you know what the, this film grossed uh no but I mean I'm assuming max why don't you like, guess what like, what it grossed in the u s why don't you guess what it grossed Worldwide, and then try and guess domestic. Uh, I'm gonna say worldwide, maybe like five million. Okay, how much of that was and domestic? Domestic, I'm gonna say maybe like two million. Okay, 
I can understand, based off the numbers from the first film, how you got there. Now, it grossed $15.8 million worldwide. $5.8 was domestic. $10 million was international. The budget, $2.5 million. How? How? <laughs> Was that it? Must budget? have been location. It had to have been. It had to have had been. To the have locations been. and actors. Dude, it wasn't the actors. Both of the Ethan and Julie were not pulling in like you know multi-million-dollar fucking deals. Not 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 their star power back then. I'm sorry. Maybe a mil each. <laughs> that's because they actually they. It's only because they they helped write the film too. So, but yeah, it's it. I mean. It still made crazy money, but I just want to know how that budget was so high. If so, where'd the freaking money go? I guess location. I don't know. It's the only thing I can think of, like you said. So, but there you have it. Fifteen point eight million against a two point five million dollar budget. No wonder we got a sequel three or uh, nine years later. And here in the show, we'll be talking about it right before the holidays. All right, let's move on in the meantime to the Critics' Corner. See what they had to say. So, Before Sunset has a Rotten Tomato score of 94% based on 177 reviews with a critical consensus that says filled with engaging dialogue Before Sunset is a witty, poignant romance with natural chemistry between Hawk and Delpy. It's got a meta score of 90 out of 100 based on 39 reviews and uh, no cinema score, but Ebes, in comparing the film to its predecessor, he wrote, Before Sunrise was a remarkable celebration of the fascination of good dialogue, but Before Sunset is better, perhaps because the characters are older and wiser, perhaps because they have more to lose or win, and perhaps because Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke wrote the dialogue themselves. Um, you got a point. He's, you know, he's, he's not wrong. In a review for the LA Times... Manola Dargis launched the film as a deeper, truer work of art than the first and praised director Richard Linklater for making a film that keeps faith with American cinema at its finest. Uh, reviewing, for the, uh, reviewing the acting, Peter Travers from Rolling Stone observed, Hawk and Delpy find nuance, nuance, art, and eroticism in words spoken and unspoken. The actors shine. Um, and finally, on the merits of the script, the New York Times A.O. Scott noted it was sometimes maddening, but also enthralling, precisely because of its casual dis- disregard for the usual imper- imperatives of screenwriting. He elaborated, can't they just say what you mean? Can't they just say what they mean? Can you? Language, after all, is not just about points and meanings, it is a Medium of com- medium of communication, yes, but also of avoidance, misdirection, self-protection, and plain confusion, all of which are among the themes of this movie, which captures a deep truth seldom acknowledged on screen or in books. So that was a lot to take in. All in all, this film gets heavily praised. 
I didn't count the number of um, uh, professional reviewers whose top five or top ten this uh, list. I, th- I think roughly thirty to forty um, professional reviewers or, or film reviewers had this on their top ten list from two thousand four. So it's commonly praised. Um, hell, even on Twitter, I was talking about this film uh, yesterday. I had a little poll up uh, asking everyone on film Twitter what everyone's favorite film of the of the trilogy is. And, of course, everyone was like, if I had to pick, it'd be this one. So, yeah, Twitter did this film proud. So, and I'm proud of Twitter for doing this one proud because I love this movie so much. It deserves all the praise it's been getting. Um, so let's move on real quick to, uh, pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. It's good to get this out of the way right now. I have no cons. None. So this is all pro for me. And I just kind of skimmed it down the the four biggest pros and left it at that. So without further ado, pros. The acting in the script. Obviously, that's the film Stronger Suits. Um, the real-time effect is a welcoming, nice addition. The film is full of genuine emotion. I think that's like one of the things I do love most about this movie is how pure the feeling and emotion is in this movie. And that being said, number four, there's no BS. This movie doesn't fuck around. You know, it doesn't hold your hand. Um, it's it's just a respectful film that's about it's about love and it's about these two people that we as viewers just we love we love to see things happen to them and you know we can sit here as a community of film lovers and praise a film like this that is merely an 81 minute conversation between two people walking around Paris and that's the film and we're all praising it like it's the next Citizen Kane you know something to say about that conversations just I don't even think it's the conversations, Corey. I mean, I might be alone on this island. But I I feel like it's the performances and, and the actors. And the actors themselves. Like, they give off this, this charisma. And um, we want to like them, you know? They could be talking about desert sand for an hour and a half. And it wouldn't make a difference. I'd still watch this film and give it you know, not not as much praise, but I'd give it some still, just because it's fucking Celine and Jesse. So, I don't know. I'm getting off script here. Um, how about you, Corey? Do you have any cons? If so, what are they? And let's hear your pros. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any cons. I, you know, I think it's a perfect film for what it is. I, you know, there's really nothing that stands out uh, that. I specifically disliked or I would change. So yeah, no cons for me. I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't change anything. Okay. Um, obviously I have several pros. I mean, like you mentioned, the top one has to be the performances. I mean, a film like this doesn't work without performances. 
you cannot hold interest even for 80 minutes if the performances are just got awful. It doesn't matter how good the writing or the plot or the idea is. Right. You have to believe in the characters. Delivery. And yeah, you absolutely do this whole time. I mean, like I said, if you told me that Jesse was exactly Ethan Hawke and Celine was exactly Julie Delpy, I would believe it. I mean, it is just so natural so real feeling and that's why it connects so well so yeah obviously the performances and the acting is my number one uh followed closely behind is the dialogue and the writing uh because obviously even if you have great performances if they're saying nonsense <laughs> you know it still takes it down a notch whether you believe they're real or not uh you know it is good to have great dialogue and they do i mean it just feels like a real conversation it feels like Two people at their age, you know, would actually be conversing like this. And it's just a natural progression on the characters, you know, pretty much. I believe everything that happened to these characters, like it absolutely makes sense in my mind that, you know, this is where they've been in the past nine years. Um, So it's just really awesome. Just kind of catching up with old friends and just the natural progression of the characters. So, yeah, the writing is just spot on and i think it really shows uh why you should have input from the actors i mean you know even hawk and julie delphi are both so talented it was just really smart of link later to have them um you know help writing the dialogue mm-hmm. and i think it really helps um my next pro is i love the fact that it's real time you know that might not be for everybody but it's just something so unique um, I just love the fact that it's like a stream of consciousness and it's just a conversation and they're just going from one part to the next. Uh, you know, it kind of adds a little bit to this movie to make it stand out. The fact that, you know, they only have an hour and 20 minutes and it's in real time. Uh, so you really feel the crunch because, you know, you're watching the sequel, you want them to fall in love and you just feel that ticking clock. It just adds a little bit more to it when you're like, oh man, they're going to run out of time. I really hope Jesse doesn't go back. Uh, you know, without uh, Celine, you know, it's just when you're watching it, it's just like two friends and you just really want them to get together. And, you know, at least for me, I was kind of worried it wasn't going to happen the first time I was watching it because you have this time constraint where maybe things just won't fall into place. So I I love the fact that it's all in real time. (laughs) Um, And my last pro has to be, I really appreciate Julie Delpy's music in this. I really do think it adds something. It just adds like that authentic French touch and it just adds so much of her personality. Um, you know, I didn't initially know that, uh, you know, her music was featured in there as much. It wasn't until I rewatched it and did a little bit more research, but yeah, just fantastic. I really appreciate Julie Delpy's music in the film. So that's my last pro. All right. Um, very good then. <laughs> we can skip over Mulligan a moment. We can even skip over Finger Looking Good. We've pretty much discussed the two of them in our pros, right? Yeah, I mean, Finger Looking Good, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious uh, it's going to be the end scene. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, So, I mean, it's just such a great ending. You know, I do like the fact that, you know, this whole movie is a conversation, but then the end scene is just singing (laughs) and he's not being silent. I do like kind of that transition. You know, the, the talking is kind of over now. Yes. And, and then now they're just in this scene, just falling back in love. I do like that kind of juxtaposition of um having the conversation be 
such the leading part, but then now they've kind of settled into her apartment at the end and there's just no more inane chit chat. It's just, uh, you know, two people that love each other and are just now realizing it again and, uh, just having this great tender moment. So I do like that. Cause I think if it was just more dialogue and chit chat, it might not have felt quite real. Like, cause in those moments in real life, you're not always talking like that. So I just, yeah, obviously finger looking good has to be the uh, end scene. Just an all timer. Great. Just, uh, you know, if you ask me to pick something like from a film, like, you know, what shows two characters falling in love or what expresses uh, romantic love in a really good way? This film would be at the top of my list. The end scene. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. And speaking of that, like this, try that. You can do it. And honestly, I was going to say before Sunrise, um, you got two of these films, put them together, and you've got a perfect left-right combination, especially if you're looking for like a, a new age romance of some sort. Look no further. Like the whole story of Jesse and Celine are just, it, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's one for the books. And, um... <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of movie. It's it's about these two people that are just falling in love, and you're watching it. You know, the first film is not in real time, but you know, it's close enough. It's it's it takes place over one night. There's no just like this movie. There's no bullshit. It, it cuts to the ch- it cuts to the chase and uh, gets in and out. You know, it's not like a three hour epic. You know, it's it's. I don't know. I just feel like the two films complement each other very well. So that's why if you love this, try the original. Hopefully you've seen the original before you've seen this. Next time, watch <laughs> them together. So yeah, that's that's it. That's what I got for this one. So not like I'm trying to people. I'm not trying to get people to discover the first film, obviously, because I would hope they'd seen that before this. I just think that they're perfect. You know, it's like a yin. It's like the yin yang. It's like how I feel uh, before sunrise and sunset. So, anyway, I'm rambling again. How about you, Core? So yeah, obviously, uh, you would want to watch the first one, so that would go well with this. Uh, I'm gonna pick something else, though. Um, Please, and mine's a Woody Allen film, uh, Midnight in Paris. Uh, always gone well together for me like i don't know why they just kind of have a link for me and obviously it could be the fact that they're both set in paris um but midnight in paris just such an awesome movie um for anybody who doesn't know uh it's starring owen wilson one of my favorite performances of his and it also has a parallel he's a writer he's a screenwriter in that film um and it's just about him with his fiance in paris um, and he's just kind of contemplating on life and daydreaming and then finding himself back in old 1920s Paris. So, uh, just a great, uh, I think double feature it kind of fits into that, you know, romantic love category. And then also has the Paris setting with the writer. Um, and you know what you're getting into with a Woody Allen film. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites of, um, 
his Woody Allen and one of my favorite Owen Wilson performances. And I think it pairs well with this. Like, uh, you know, if you and your girl watching this one night, you know, maybe try Midnight in Paris. I think it goes pretty well. All right. All right. Here we go. So. <laughs> Fuck it. Movie MVPs. All right. Now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is. So, you've got a choice of Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke. Who are you going with? I'm going with Ethan Hawke, personally. He's my MVP. <laughs> um, yeah, just because of that range, you know, and it goes back to everything I said at the beginning about him and the way he acts, and especially around this, this point of his career. I just think he's awesome. So, that's, that's pretty much, uh, all I'm going to say. So, yeah, this was, this is a tough one for me. You know, if you asked me this before the end scene, I would say it would be a tie. I think, uh, Ethan Hawke and Jolie Delpy are both equally great in the film. And I think they play off each other so well. I really couldn't pick one, but I think what seals it for me is the end scene. Like we've talked about so much and I got to give it to Ethan Hawke. I just think, when he's sitting on that couch, he just the way his the eyes way he smiles and his face at and yeah. the way he smiles, he plays it off so well. Uh, I just have to give it. It's not easy to do that type of thing. And he just nails it so well. And I don't want to downplay Julie Delphi's part in it because she is just so adorable in that scene with the singing. And I, you know, I absolutely believe her in that scene as well. And I feel the love coming off of her. But I just think Ethan Hawke edges it out just a little bit more just because I appreciate when actors can convey things so well and so easily without even speaking or without speaking much. So I really appreciate that. So, yeah, I have to give it to Ethan Hawke a slight edge, but it's really close, really close. All right, then. Let's move on to our final category of the episode. It's the final category of every episode. The final effect. Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. Ah. On a scale. Ow. On a scale of one to ten. <laughs> on a scale of one to ten. Give me the damn veggies. What do you think? All right. So for me, I'll go first. Five stars. Go and find me a better masterpiece in storytelling. That's better than this. I'll wait. In fact, the matter is, I I think I love this film a little too much. I'm so infatuated with Jesse and Celine that I just want the best. I want the best for them. Like they're a real couple. Like these characters mean a lot to me. And Before Sunset to me is a perfect film. So, just short and sweet to the point. Five stars. That's. I swear by this movie. So I'm done. Yeah. So (laughs) it's like, and that is it. Uh, yeah. So for me, obviously it's gotta be a high rating. So four and a half out of five, uh, like I, like you said, I think it's a masterpiece as well. Just perfect film. Uh, I don't say that too often. You know, there's very few films where, I really can't think of any way it could really be any better. And, you know, I just can't imagine it any different. So, so yeah, give I it mean, the five stars. It's this no, four and a half I'm, kibble. <laughs> I'm eh, just kidding. Four and a, I mean, four and a half. I mean, come on. 
But, uh, you know, if I had to criticize anything, I would like maybe a little bit more, maybe stretch it out, maybe add me an extra scene in there. I could be okay with that. You know, (laughs) I mean, I didn't put it in my mulligan moment, but, you know, you could stretch it to 90. Add another uh, show them going across the the, the way for a loaf of bread. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's just so great. Uh, you know, when I was watching this film the first time, just uh, going a little tangent, I was a little worried that they and I mentioned it before. Um, I was worried they weren't going to get together. And, you know, we didn't mention this before, but it highlights it. The fact that they were both in New York at the same time, you know, at, through their conversations, you find out uh, Jesse or Ethan right. Hawke has been living in New York. And then you find out Celine actually was living in New York mm-hmm. for a time. Right. Uh, and they never saw each other. They were so close. Uh, it turned out they lived fairly close by. And, you know, Jesse confesses that he thought he had seen her, but he thought he was crazy because why would Celine be in New York? So I thought like w- during that whole part, during that whole scene, I, I was just thinking, oh, man, they're not going to get together. I was like, this is like foreshadowing or something <laughs> like that. I was like, oh, man, they're not going to get together. So uh, just a funny little thing. I think the movie just wraps itself up so perfectly. It could have went with a cynical route where maybe some people would say, well, it'd be more realistic if they didn't get together. But I love the fact that it goes with the romantic and, you know, just idealized route where, you know, it's still open. Like, yeah, they're falling back in love with each other, but you still don't know if they really end up with each other because, Jesse still lives in the U.S. and she lives in France. But I just love the fact that it ends on the romantic note, um, you know, when they're falling back in love and, you know, just want to be together again. I mean, it's just such a great movie. I mean, obviously, uh, for me, it gets the film effects seal of approval. Uh, you know, one of the best romance movies uh, of all time, in my opinion, like one of my favorites. Uh, you know, there's just so many that are out there that are just trite. Like I'm not saying they're necessarily bad. It's just, you know, generic formulaic writing, Mm -hmm. generic characters, right? You know, just, you're just in there. Like I think of like the notebook and I'm not taking anything away from anybody who likes the notebook, but you know, you're just there to look at pretty people and see a basic easy plot with not so great dialogue. (laughs) You know, this movie is just done so well and can show, that, you know, with good writing and good acting, even somebody who like me, who doesn't really ever watch these type of movies or really care about them for the most part, can like or love a film so much. Uh, and that just goes down to the craftsmanship between uh, Linklater's directing and writing and the performances. I mean, that's like I said, perfect film and all timer uh, just on every level. It's just great. You know, just an awesome film. All right, well, this episode is sponsored by Paris Love in the Middle of Record-Setting Heat Waves. And that's going to put a bow on our Before Sunset episode, a film that 100% gets that full film effect seal of approval. As discussed, one down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at our website, which, of course, is thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please follow us on the following social media platforms for future announcements, to interact with us, up-to-the-minute updates, news, all that good stuff. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all links in the episode notes. Ratings and reviews, they really help the show out and go a long way for us. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out FuryCast, last week's Freddy vs. Jason episode, which was a true blast to record. 
so happy. <laughs> so happy okay. we did that. Yeah. <laughs> Love just listening back to our laughs and stuff that we shared during that. That was good stuff. Um, coming up, we're bringing the summer season to a close by turning the heat up and giving Con Air. That's right, gang. Con Air, the full film effect treatment. And then in September, we've got back to school month. And then October, of course, is our jam-packed Halloween horathon month featuring oh so many episodes. And yeah, um, it's going to be a good time. In the meantime... Yeah, I'm just... No. I'm just excited. Like, I know we're in the towards the end of August, but like one of my neighbors has already started decorating their yard for Halloween. And it's just like, I, I'm just like, that is too early. But I'm also excited because it means we're only a couple months away. Dude, it, uh, all bets are know, off. So, so September pumped. 1st is in a couple of weeks. And to me now, uh, over the last handful of years, I've just come to realize that September 1st, all bets are off. And that's kind of like the unofficial kickoff to the season. Even though a lot of people will still argue October. Hey, man, if I get two months of this season, I'm a happy camper. It's my favorite time of the year. It's my favorite holiday. It's just, I don't know. I love the feeling that I get during the actual holidays at the end of the year. But nothing compares to the feeling that I get during Halloween season. Just seeing all the Halloween commercials on TV. Seeing all the decorations every night. Halloween itself. Like, you know. Cool fall air. The yeah, I, I just love fall. Hoodie yeah. weather, man. Campfires. I'm going camping in Gettysburg for a week, as always. Uh, the week before Halloween. I can't wait to do that again. So, there's so much to look forward to. And um, I can't wait. And half the thing, you know, I, and I'm already prepared to be tied up a lot because of the Harathon, because of the podcast. And I don't, I <laughs> just, you know what? I'm not complaining one bit. I enjoy it. It's, it's to me, it's kind of like, Part of the holiday season now for for Halloween is doing. Yeah, I mean, the last year, yeah, last year was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I kind of look at it and I'm like, oh man, we're gonna be tired. <laughs> but also, I think back to how much fun it was last year. You know, yeah. recording so many episodes. They're fun, and, and and you know, as tiresome as it might be for you, I gotta edit this stuff. But no, I it's I even enjoy doing that because it's just I know it's worth it, and it's gonna be worth it in the end. You know, I believe in our product and I love talking about horror. So, yeah, 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 just gear up for that. It's coming a lot sooner than you to realize it. Um, anyway, thank you all so much for listening to the show. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back on Friday for fewer casts. Until then, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this has been the Film Effect Podcast. Take care now. Bye bye. See you guys. About this lovely one night stand. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.